0: Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Jensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got five members, five questions, and five answers for each question. Questions are generated by squad members and run from the serious to the silly. Let's do a firing squad roll call.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Gina Martin, and I am a counselor, education, and supervision doctoral candidate at University of Iowa. I'm also an instructor at Northwestern University and co-host of Supervision Time. Hi, I'm Steph Martyr,
2: a counselor education and supervision doctoral candidate at Kent State University, a practicing clinical counselor and co-host of Grad School Deconstructed.
3: Jen Cook, assistant professor, counselor education and counseling uh, psychology at Marquette University.
4: Hi, everybody. Uh, Elliot Ingersoll. I'm a professor of counseling at Cleveland State University and co-host of Apply Topically. Gina, first
0: question goes to you.
1: So in our profession, we have a combination of many hats that we wear and many different roles that we step into. And so I'm wondering if you could only pick one for the rest of your career, would you choose teaching, research, or clinical practice? We'll start with Steph.
2: I really felt that this was an unfair question because I'm specifically designing my career to incorporate all three of these as equally as possible. So that's it's tricky. It that's that's good there, Gina. You got me. I think that I can't make a decision. Probably teaching because I feel that it it is the most has the most elements from both counseling. And research. And it's one that kind of unifies all of them together the most out of those three choices. So, because I like working with people, and that way I could still work with students, but I also really enjoy research and reading the literature. So, that would also keep me informed and also have that community of faculty around. And so, I would still feel connected to the profession that way. So, I have to go with teaching. How about you, Marty?
0: I would go with teaching, too. For me, it's like research. Yeah, that's fascinating and interesting. But frankly, people can research and research and research and research. And it doesn't necessarily impact people as directly as teaching, I think, would. Clinical practice, um, that's just passed me at this point in my life. And um, I'm not sure that would be something I'd see myself doing. For the rest of my life, anyways. But really, the thing that I'm enjoying the most is work as much as I complain about meetings. The thing that I am enjoying the most is working with associations to help them structure the work that they do. Some of the background that I've had working with employee assistants and with managers, all of that fits for me very much into working with the professional associations. So I added a fourth piece in there. I don't think that's fair, but that's what I'm getting the most joy out of. And I could see myself doing that for the rest of uh, my time. Jen?
3: So I joined this profession because of the diversity in roles, and which is kind of funny because my first career, I hated that I was supposed to be good at so many different things and that people wanted you to be a great preacher, a great teacher, a great handholder, a great visitor, you know, all of these things. It drove me absolutely nuts. But what I actually learned when I left that career and went into more straightforward work, which was all in the service industry and a return to that work, to be completely honest, I realized that I missed the diversity. So when I went to graduate school and was becoming a counselor and found my circuitous way into becoming a counselor educator, I was like, oh, yes, diversity in roles. This is fan-freaking-tastic for me because I like to be able to do different things. Like Marty, I have to, I have to add the service piece into this. And I also have to add the supervision piece into this. But if you want to, you know, hold, hold my feet to the fire and make me choose absolutely one, I'm going to be probably the oddball in this and choose research. Elliot.
4: Well, as in so many instances of counselor education and counseling, for me, it depends. I would I hands down, I would choose teaching. I love teaching. I I love the interaction with students. I love everything I learned from the students. But if we're going to live in a kind of constant plague-ridden society and we're going to be constantly teaching remotely, I'm 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 getting better at it. I've warmed up to it. Thanks in part. Marty was a, a guest on apply topically and he is walking me through some of the tech stuff and I feel better about it. But honestly, if it was all going to be remote and I only had like seven years till retirement, I might just go with research because there is still so much stimulation and creativity there that I might be able to find some comfort, but maybe it's not about comfort so there's a three-part answer, none of which is very connected. I think the next question... No, Gina, you have to answer your question. I'm sorry.
1: So I, I agree. I It's a hard question to answer because I think we go into this field for all of these different reasons, and I think that each of the areas attracts us to this field in particular. And so for me, I had a hard time too, but I think hands-down teaching. teaching's is my passion. and. That's where, where I'd want to be. So our next question goes to Seth.
2: I would like to know, are books the most respected form of personal entertainment? Is there a stigma against learning from other sources such as movies, television, or music? Marty.
0: This was a tough question for me because when I read it, I thought personal entertainment the Yes, if you're talking about novelizations and stories and things like that. But then you said, is there a stigma against learning from movies or television? I'm like, well, are you now talking about educative materials? But I kind of went with the first and thought, speaking about personal entertainment, yeah, there are book snobs out there. I get real quiet when I'm sitting around a group of people all sharing the latest book that they've read, whether it's novel or nonfiction. And, you know, it's sort of, I get my information from different sources and I get my information in different ways. I also wonder, where in your life do you find all the time to read books? Whereas, thank you, I'm sure it was a good book. Steven Spielberg just did a movie on it. I'll watch the movie and get the same emotions, and get the same understanding. Jen.
3: I'm totally cracking up over here because people love to feel themselves around what they have read and to make people feel some sort of way whenever they get in these very intellectualized discussions about the books that they have consumed. They don't read them, they consume, you know, they've consumed the literature, you know, and I'm gonna I, I kind of did a mixing with this question, sort of like Marty did, because when I start thinking about learning, I automatically go to my students, despite the fact that I didn't list teaching first. I, I love thinking about and figuring out how to help students learn in multiple domains. And I can't help but bring up one of the assignments that I um, offer students during the clinical mental health foundations of clinical mental health course is one in which it's a four phase project, and during the second phase, They actually have to examine the scholarly literature and public or um, excuse me, popular culture. Um, Those are absolutely essential. And they have to talk about where the overlaps are and is the scholarly literature paying attention to what's going on in popular culture? Because let's face it, like our clients, by and large, I mean, I'm sure some of them are consuming literature. But by and large, people are on the internet. They're watching movies, they're Netflixing, Hulu, all of those types of things. And sure, people still read, but our clients are immersed in a culture. They're seeing billboards, they're hearing ads, they're, you know, and so despite whatever stigma that haughty folk um, want to put on books, I really prize what goes on in other forms of entertainment because. I really do think that there is cultural critique happening in that just as much as there is in books. So, I would hate to see us be so set on books being the only way. Elliot?
4: Well, I like most of you, I kind of broke this down into a couple of pieces and the first part I read are books the most respected in quotes a form of personal entertainment. My first thought was not in the states, no. I mean, knock fighting, it's like in Braveheart, you got two Scottish guys, oh bash you no bloody fucking, I don't, you know. I'm like, oh, that's probably where we're going next. So I don't think that's a case in our society. But then I was like, is there a stigma against learning from movies or television? I'm like, absolutely not. One of the things I learned, I've been writing a lot of fiction, and I watch interviews with authors. Now I've read Stephen King's book on writing, I've read Kurt Vonnegut's books on writing. I've read uh, so many of these, but then I would see interviews with them and they would, they would offer so many uh, ideas via interviews on YouTube. Like if you want the reader to feel the energy uh, expended by a character, have a large kind of run-on sentence, you know, and uh, how do you use commas in a compound sentence to create a sense of pause or space, you know, stuff like that. I, I learned a great deal. And as Marty and I talked about in um, our discussion and Apply Topically, when I had to put a speedometer on my bike, I went to YouTube and I, I found somebody who would just, without the bells and whistles, laid it straight out and I learned how to do that. So yeah, I would absolutely say that you can learn from, I mean, just about anything, honestly. Gina?
1: Yeah. So similarly to all of you, I also split this into two. At first I read it and I was like the most respected form of entertainment. I was like, I don't know about that. I mean, I think that there's a lot of different forms of entertainment that are out there uh, that might be more sophisticated or more high end than reading potentially. Um, But that being said, I think that reading is up there. And like Jen, you mentioned, like there is a snobbery attached to it in, in consuming the literature and in consuming the content from these things. But that being said, I look at this the tail end of that question, and in my classes, I teach through videos, I teach through the reading, but I know the reading doesn't always get read. <laughs> so I feel that a, a lot of times in showing a brief clip, that gets across a point, that gets across an emotion, that gets across an experience, potentially in a different way than reading it would. So I think it's just as valuable, if not more valuable to use in tandem with the reading as well. So it's kind of my my two part answer to that. Steph, back to you. I really appreciate the thought that everyone has put in to their
2: answers and even possibly thinking about this in more ways than I originally intended it, which I think brought a depth to the question that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, I was going I was going for those who maybe pictured those book snobs. If you're not spending your free time reading a book. You're just making your brain melt from nonsense. I think that it goes to that whole it depends. This is where I'm going to use our it depends universal answer. And what Jen had me thinking about was that the most important piece is perhaps the critical thinking that goes into what people are watching. So, how they're interpreting it. I know I just listened to so much music when I was younger, I didn't have cable. So I had like four channels growing up. And so then I was listening to a lot of music, but references that were made in the lyrics because I'd read the liner notes and I would like study the musicians and I would have it all memorized and it would lead me down different rabbit holes. It was just a natural curiosity. So that is where I learned a lot of things that maybe others learned from reading books, you know, in those times. So just kind of had me thinking about that in that contextual way as far as where do people place it, but like really where are people getting their information from? And I think it just sounds like everybody here agrees that it can come from anywhere. Really, it's about what you're selecting to show and and how it's being perceived. Marty, what's your question? Well, first,
0: uh, Steph, it's so good to do this podcast because uh, we get to hear from everybody, but then I hear little stories from you and there's similarities in our upbringing. Lots of times, I growing up, not a lot of entertainment, reading liner notes, trying to read the lyrics, trying to find out what the lyrics mean. That, uh, that really touched me when you said that. Um, you know, when we put these questions together, I put a call out to the squad and they send back questions. We have a, a bank that we use and it's always difficult for me to pick questions so there's a balance between some of the serious some of the uh, silly and some of the just plain bizarre kinds of questions and i always wind be wind up being the guy that has to come up with a serious question to kind of balance out all the bizarre and silly stuff that the squad comes up with because we are trying to get people to think about things a little uh, deeper and differently in their profession. However, this week I get a just strange question to ask. And my question is, what was the worst neighbor you ever had? Jen?
3: This is a really tough one for me because I've been living in apartments for 25 years. So when you live in apartments, you become... Far more involved in your uh, neighbors' lives than when you live in a home and have some separation from them. Um, I've had neighbors who would fight. I've had neighbors who would scream. I've had neighbors who would throw each other out of the house on a regular basis. I've had neighbors that would deal drugs. I've had neighbors that would um, take in uh, people who are homeless from the street and have a running uh, group of people in and out of their homes right now, I think I have one of the worst neighbors I've ever had in my life who lives above me. And I'm not sure how many people live in this apartment um, because sometimes it seems like no one is there. Days at a time, I hear nothing. Then all of a sudden, it sounds like men in work boots. Then other days, it sounds like they're bowling, literally bowling above my head. And what's odd about this is I've lived in this same apartment for five years. So I, I mean, I have a pretty good sense of the sounds and you know what comes through. It's an old early 1900s building, so all wood floors, but very solid. And the only time I ever heard anyone above me was when there was presumably um, somebody who was into high heels and when that person would go to work in the morning and when they would come home at night. That was it. And that lasted maybe four months. Now I've got the intermittent bowler above me. And I have to tell you that he or they, she starts this nonsense at the exact time that I lie down to have my rest in the afternoon and does it for a good hour. At one point, I thought they had a treadmill and a bowling alley up there. There's still a chance that that's the case. So if you ever hear banging during my recordings, it's my neighbors that are upstairs. Elliot. Elliot.
4: Well, I, I resonate with a lot of what you said, Jen, because I've had neighbors. When I lived in inner city Youngstown, I had a neighbor who said, yeah, we shared a front porch. And he was like, oh, oy, yeah, you should lock your car up. You know, your car is unlocked. And I was like, oh, good to know. And then every car in the neighborhood got broken into except for mine. And I was like, well, I guess I'm on the right side of that one. I don't know. But. My partner and I, in our second um, apartment in Kent, we uh, we had a couple move in next door. And, you know, it's, you can hear everything. But they were, they were both preternaturally tanned, like our president, you know. And they had the brightest teeth. I'd never seen teeth like this. And they smiled at me. And I had a seizure once. I was like, what was, oh, I'm sorry, what was that? And then we shared a foyer and a front porch and uh, and a dooryard, but we were on the front porch and they were bringing all these cameras and equipment in. And we're, my partner and I are just like, oh, yeah, I don't know what they're doing. And then we went back in and we were making lunch and we heard some screeching, squealing, and then rhythmic bumping. I was like, well, that, that sounds like intimate activity, doesn't it? And she's, yeah, it does kind of. and. uh then we went, we were back on the porch and they came out and they had all these costumes on like police costumes and they had leather pants and things and they went back in and we went back in. And of course we hear the rhythmic bumping and my partner's like, are they filming porn movies over there? And I said, I think they might be. So that, that's was probably the worst neighbor that I ever had. Gina
1: these are great i i resonate so much with all of them i yes in college um we had a roommate Elliot that would do similar things and in a very small apartment with very thin walls we were all like why why um and jen same thing with the upstairs neighbors it's been really something else with those thin dorm room walls um but that being said I've lived in apartments for a while too. And we recently bought our house here in Iowa. And I have to say, I think the, the, uh, the next neighbor over here is not potentially the worst neighbor that I've ever had, but maybe the most bizarre. Um, so what happened is when uh, they moved in, well, first we'll rewind. When I moved into my house, None of the neighbors introduced themselves or said hi or brought anything over. And I thought maybe that's like old school. Maybe people don't do that anymore and that's okay. Um, but then I was like, well, I still want to, you know, make friends with the neighbors and bring stuff over and when people move in and try to be friendly, you know. And so the people next door to us moved in and I brought over cupcakes because I really like cupcakes. I think I've talked about that in here before. And so I brought over a thing at cupcakes and they weren't home. So I set it out by their... Um, you know, front door. And on it, I wrote like, Hi, welcome to the neighborhood. My name is Gina Martin. And I live at, you know, the house number right next door. And here's my phone number. Never heard from them. Never heard anything. So a year and a half passes. And now they're pregnant with their first child. And I'm walking outside. And I'm, you know, we've kind of seen each other. And we've always kind of waved. But the cupcakes have never been spoken about and then all of a sudden a year and a half later she's pregnant and i said hi and i was like oh when are you due and she was like oh i'm due in september whatever and then she started talking about the cupcakes so she got them noticed them and never commented on them so i just it's they're not bad neighbors for any reason but i just think it's the strangest thing that they never mentioned the cupcakes for a year and a half stuff
2: yeah, the, I, I really have vowed to never live not on the top floor ever again or if I'm at a hotel, even just because of all of those horror stories of people who live above you. When I was in Boston working on my master's um, long time ago, but I was in a, an apartment in Jamaica Plain, which is just kind of like out of the city on the orange line, but way out there. But our neighbors above um, just, I was I had a study and I was trying to get work done and they were playing music and I went up and I was just like, excuse me, I'm really, and I hadn't asked them for like nine months. I hadn't ever asked them to like, just, hey, can you mind the volume a little? Um, but she, she did not care at all. And she got mad at me for asking. Um, so then turned it up. And I, okay. Um, that was unpleasant. And then living in Rhode Island, there was an apartment where I realized my little naive self got taken for $1,800 because this guy had a motorcycle. I was renting an Xterra. He put the motorcycle right behind the Xterra without notifying me or anything. And so it was too close to where the mirrors were, but there was nothing wrong with it. Like you have to get it fixed. And he brought me like handwritten kind of write up from a (laughs) dealer, but I didn't know what to do. So I I paid it (laughs) because I was dumb, but um, those were my, those, yeah, those were not good neighbors to have. Marty, what about your neighbors?
0: Well, um, the ones that come to mind, we've lived in the same house for 20 years and uh, we live in a cul-de-sac and it's a tight little loop cul-de-sac. It's a rather older, part of the the city. And so, you know, they made them small. There's, the, you know, for cars just kind of turn around and go in. So the houses are relatively close to each other. And we had a neighbor uh, during the 20 years, the first people that were there when we moved in was actually a college professor whose daughter wound up going to Kent and was at Kent and then went through our counselor education and supervision program is now a faculty member. Um, and, but the mother, who was a faculty member, too, moved out of that house. Um, So we've had a series of neighbors that have come through. And one of the neighbors uh, parked their rickety old RV in the driveway all winter. So, you know, you'd look out on a nice wintry day and there would be this old RV that was in the view. And it was a celebration day every summer when... We drove up to see the RV had gone for the season, at least for the summer season. I think one summer it stayed there all summer because there was a relative who wound up living in it because they had gotten into some domestic issue. Um, that was one part of the story with these neighbors. Reality, they were very nice. They, they, Aileen, got a flat one time. The husband helped fix the flat. Would shovel the driveway with his plow but they were screamers and that was the only way they communicated. And so in the summer, when our windows were open, their windows were open and it was screaming the whole time. Um, And and it wasn't out of anger. It was just the way they communicated. However, there was one incident that happened. They had a maybe five-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son. And the sister goes, Tommy, Tommy, I want to do it, and you couldn't quite hear what Tommy said in response to that. But what then we heard from the five-year-old's mouth was, "Tommy, you don't know shit," and <laughs> and that just that had cracked it cracked. That we laughed out loud. We both heard it, and we laughed out loud. And that's kind of become our personal mantra when something goes wrong, or or Aileen and I make a mistake. Either one of us will say. Tommy, you don't know shit. Um, and so that's that's our worst neighbor. Jen, you've got the next question.
3: Well, I think we could go on about the worst neighbor stories for a really long time. There was a lot of energy around that. Thank you all. Um, for my question tonight, I'm, I'm kind of moving back into the serious. So what is one course you think needs to be added to all clinical mental health counseling programs? Just one. I know we got too many courses as it is, by the way. I I just want to put that caveat out there. Um, Most of us are running 60 credit programs already. Um, But if you had your druthers, which one that's not typically uh, across the board offered, what would you offer? Elliot?
4: Well, we'd have to give KCREP a good kick in the diaphragm to make this happen. But that's neither here nor there. We had an alumnus of our program and she was a a a good student, but a very intense student. And she was kind of a a, a cross between Martha Stewart and Charles Manson. So I was never quite sure how to, you know, interact with her, but she had come in, she's like, Doctor, I I want to have a meeting. This was about two years after she graduated. And I said, Yeah, great. And she said, You need a course in teaching students how to earn money. With the skill set they get with this degree. And I was like, actually, that's a good idea. Um, yeah. And I'm I I you know, I I quite think that that would be that would be a a very good addition, you know, and it could include diversifying your skill set, building on the skills you've learned. But you know, how do you, you know, earn money with the the skills and the degree? Gina, what do you think?
1: I think that's a great idea. Um Mine is a little bit different. I, so in my master's program, it was an option to take a trauma course and in the PhD, there's no trauma course. So I am, and I know I've talked about this on here before, but I am definitely a full fledged advocate for <laughs> training people in how to work with trauma, just because it's so prevalent, so, you know, what most of my experience is in and all that. Um, and I think that it would just be so useful to, to train counselors on how to work with something that will inevitably walk through their doors. So I'm all the way for, for a trauma course. How about you, Steph? I have been wanting to add
2: or see something more along the lines of innovations, um, perhaps technology based or just some new ideas and just have a course that kind of encompasses all the new newer trends in counseling, the, the things that still have validity, that there's still, you know, evidence-based is not just, you know, futuristic imagination kind of um, concept practices, but things that are being used now, um, there's a lot out there. I think, you know, we, we are learning much more about technology recently without planning to as a society, and if counselors had some type of formal education, if they chose to take a course in that to learn more about it, it could really help them become more comfortable with what's out there and be able to provide the best um, options for clients and and maybe provide clients with more options that might better suit their needs as well. So if we could teach students that, um, I, I think that could be useful. Marty.
0: Everybody went the content route. Um, everybody wants more content. I would have, uh, required students to take a course that has something to do with personal counseling experience. I think, uh, I, students don't have enough of their own growth work done and they're going to have their, uh, lots of ideas and lots of maybe skills, but I don't think they've moved themselves along in terms of their own personal growth. So some way to build into the curriculum a way in which students would be exposed to psychodrama, growth groups, um, even personal individual counseling, whether they need it or not. The idea that they are engaged in it so they know what that experience of the client is. I just I've been teaching group lately and um, Steph has taught it with me. And the idea of how scared they are to get into their individual groups and start to talk about their own, I don't want to say personal issues, but growth issues in terms of dealing with stress, managing, you know, it's there's this concern about it. And I'm thinking in a year or so, these folks will be out working with people who have these same concerns and they don't, they haven't quite figured it out for themselves yet. So um, that would be my my piece. And I'm curious now when it goes back to Jen, what she's going to say.
3: Well, I was really spurred by this because in our state, uh, we just added a bunch of courses to the core requirements for state licensure. So we are now the most, um, one of the most restrictive states in terms of educational requirements, including requiring a trauma course, requiring addictions for all students, um, requiring family um, systems. And I'm not opposed to those things. And in fact, like I come, I came out of a couple and family track. And so I never took an addictions class as a, as a counselor in training uh, at the master's level, which is pretty remarkable because there's some states in which I cannot be licensed despite the fact I've held a license for quite some time. So this is this is what spurred the question for me because I think states are starting to get creative and they are starting to look at the needs of their communities. Um, But by the same token, I think that um, sort of as Marty is indicating, we can't do all of this just by adding more content. Um, As much as I agree that I would love to see like a trauma and crisis counseling course uh, combo course that would if I were going to add another content course, I'd love to see that. Um, However, I, I really do think there needs to be more intentional experiential learning that allows students to dig more into themselves. So um, having to be a part of a community project, for example, by volunteering with community members for an entire year. Um, And I would vie for their very first year in the program um, to be involved in something like that where they have to be in focus groups um, to talk about their experiences, their growth, that type of thing. you know, I want to see more of that experiential stuff because I do think, especially with those of us who teach, um, more traditional age students, as opposed to those who are second career, um, which is typically where we fall, um, at my institution is in the, the, um, you know, the straight through type people. So, um, By and large, 22 to 26 is our typical age range. And I I think people need more immersion in the community. They need more of those experiential things to start to move them from being um, emerging adults into actual adults. And it's not to say that some don't get there on their own. Um, but that idea of like, let's, let's, let's usher you in to that professional. So from being late adolescents into, um, early adulthood in terms of, in terms of those developmental pieces. So I'm, I'm around the block with this one, but I am vying for more experiential. Next question to Elliot.
4: So my question not sure if it's serious or silly, might be somewhere in between. What is a great kinesthetic memory for you? It could be sports, performing, dancing, etc. What is something like that for you? Gina, how about you?
1: Yeah, I I love this question. Um, so I think I mentioned it on here before that I swam in college. And so for me, It brought me right back to that initial right when you dive off the starting blocks and swimming and, you know, you're you're dry and you're warm. And then you get into that cold pool and the water rushes over you and you start to kick and you start to go. And um, there is nothing quite like that feeling, especially when you're starting a race with the adrenaline running and, you know, kicking your legs and you feel so powerful and you're in the water. And um, so that I think that would have to be one of my favorite kinesthetic memories is just diving off the diving blocks and feeling like you're flying and and just flying through the water. Um, that being said though, too another one that comes up and again, this is another athletic one. I love to ski and I don't get to ski very often. Um, and so that's another one that just brings about some like really warm, memories. My dad and I always take a ski trip every spring. I like to do spring skiing because I'm not all that intense. Um, And we do some pretty hardcore skiing. And I I just love the, you know, going down the hill and going through the moguls and bending your knees and feeling your quads just burning because you're (laughs) flying down this mountain. But that's how you have to get down the mountain, um, seeing the sights and all that. So those are my my two memories. How about you, Steph? Oh, so the first
2: was probably, it was a singular experience, which was, which mentioned on here before the, um, the parachuting, the the jumping out of the airplane. So just that whole thing, I can still think back to it, even though it was quite some time ago now. Um, but I can still feel it. And just that that feeling, not quite intense, it's, it's faded. The other one is much more recent, but it, it was a longer thing. So I had a lot of health problems for some time where my back was really out of whack and I couldn't do too much for a while. But then over time I got stronger and a friend of mine belonged to a dojo and I th- always wanted to do martial arts and I thought that was super cool. So I started uh, jujitsu, Goshen jitsu, and going through and practicing. And then, you know, by the time my I completely killed my back, so I can't go back. Um, but in that time, it was wonderful. Uh, but getting, I got up to my blue belt and just tossing people, fighting, you know, fighting, but having that control that you're not like trying to actually hurt them so much, but just kind of being in those moments and practicing your skills. Um, I miss it terribly, Marty.
0: Uh, a great question. I um, I thought about it more in terms of what, you know, what still works in terms of a kinesthetic memory? What can I still do that um, I did a long time ago? And when I was in uh, seventh grade or eighth grade, I started playing tennis, you know, on the Chicago public park courts with holes in them and bad nets, but I played tennis and I I joined uh, the tennis team at our school and wound up playing for 4 years varsity lettered 3 and it was kind of fun because we had a tough little team that played and i got really good at it i think and then put it down after high school went to college and never touched it again except maybe when my kids got in, interested in it so a couple of times during the, during their life i took them out to the tennis courts and the, you know that would have been some 20 years after high school, and I still had it. I could still place my shots. I could still put backspin on it. But that was only a couple of times. And then flash forward now to this last year, uh, I have a Oculus Quest VR, and you know you can play tennis in it, and it's amazing because the same kinds of little twists that I'd use, or just catching the ball and just or hit you know the ball would come and I'd. I'd respond to it and I would still be able to place it. So for me, that's a kinesthetic memory that it's just little tiny movements that, uh, and adjustments that you can make that somehow I've remembered all of these years to be able to be able to do. Jen.
3: So two things immediately came to mind for me. So when I was young, I got the opportunity or had the opportunity to uh, perform vocally, and this was this was not something I ever you know expected. Just sort of fell into it. But um, in my senior year of high school, I was in a pretty I was in several groups by that point in time, but I was in a pretty serious um, eight part group, um, eight part harmony, eight voices, and. Um, we, we performed a lot. And one of the things that I was taught going into that group was that you have your performance face, that the minute that you walk out, the shoulders go back, the eyebrows go up, the mouth, you know, you're into a small position, um, and this is how you approach performance. And it is remarkable to me, and I remember this every year when I teach facial expressions uh, to my first-year students in Intro to Counseling, and I just taught them this last week, so it's remarkable that we're talking about it tonight. When I walk in front of a group, it comes right back. Um, Not that I'm performing when I'm teaching or speaking to a group or whatever the case may be, but my shoulders go back, my eyebrows go up, the brightness in the cheeks. Like it's like, it's like it's in that moment of performing. But the other one that was just so remarkable, this happened a few weeks ago. I got out my sewing machine, which I hadn't, I haven't sewed probably since I lived in Denver, which, and I left Denver in 2011, but I've been toting my sewing machine. I learned to sew when I was, when I was really young, I couldn't even tell you how old I was. Um, But I wanted to make this, this holder for my clear mask. And so I, you know, trotted it out of the closet, got it out of the box and got everything set up. And I automatically, my hand went to put the thread in on the top thread, winded everything through. And then I pulled it through and I checked that there was thread in the bobbin. My hand automatically went around to the back of the machine to lift the pedal. I was like, I just had this moment of like, I have not sewed in at least nine years on a machine. I've sewed by hand since that time, but I sat down at this machine. Like I spent every single day there, like I do my computer. And it was the most bizarre thing just to feel my left hand sneak around to lift the pedal and have my right hand go to the little windy mechanism. I don't remember what that's called that dips the needle down to pull the thread up for the bobbin. As I held the thread in the back, uh, it it kind of blew my mind to be completely honest with you, because I was never a big seamstress and it just was so automatic. And, you know, my positioning, like even in front of the machine felt exactly as it did when I first learned and what I watched my mother do for years and years as she made my clothes when I was young, you know? it was just wild. And I know that I'm kind of going on a little bit, but I just, it was just such a muscle memory moment that you realize that you're having and you're flashing back to another time. Elliot?
4: Uh, yeah, no, for me, it was solo performing at the Barking Spider Tavern up in Cleveland. Uh, and, you know, uh, Martin and his daughter, Jen, she they just did such a great job of presenting the music. And so I would be doing solo performing, I would play guitar and sing, but then I would loop the guitar and I would loop the vocals. And then I would start banging on the water bottles. I had strapped on the mic stand and banging the percussion with my feet. I would, I would cease to exist. And that was so delightful. And I think that, and and two times almost drowning, I have no fear of death. It's like to lose your sense of self is just so exquisitely delightful. I am so grateful to Martin and his daughter for that place, presenting music and playing there for 20 years. Uh, But that was, that was it for me. Final shot time. eh?
0: Yep. Time for final shot. Question is. Online conferences, yay or nay? Gina?
1: So I just last week or the weekend before I attended that one online conference and you all saw me after I was so drained and I, I think they did a really nice job with that online conference, but they are so draining much more so than normal conferences for some reason. So I think I'm going to have to go on the the nay side. (laughs) How about you, Steph?
2: They're better than nothing, probably, and definitely better than a COVID super spreader event. Jen?
3: Yeah, I'm in the nay. Um, I go to conferences for the people. Um, I, I mean, I get my CEs, yeah, sure, love to get some continuing ed, um, but I'm there for y'all. Like, I want to connect, um, and the online conferences just are not giving that opportunity, in my opinion.
4: Elliot? Well, as much as I agree with you that it's about connecting with people, I'm going to give a big yay with a bunch of queer confetti, rainbow confetti coming down. Um, just because oh, I have so many authority issues, I can't really fly anymore without getting arrested. I mean, it's just it's a problem. It's my problem. I own it, but the remote idea works for me.
0: Marty, is that are you next? Yep. I've got the last word on this one. I say yay, but they haven't been done right yet. What I hear so often about online conferences is because, oh, well, you know, I can't get together with you. Yeah, you can. They just haven't been set up that way to let it happen. So until they start trying some things out of the box or trying something new, they will always be limited by the people who put them together. So what have we learned tonight? Well, Elliot can do a great Scottish accent. Um, Jen needs to find some peaceful neighbors. And Stephanie got early inspiration from liner notes. Thanks to the squad, Gina, Stephanie, Jen, and Elliot. And I think we'll have Eric back next week. He was called away this week. Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on the PodTalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Our theme music is from Menage En Quoi, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim.